I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. And although this isn't in my bio and now never will be, I almost became a lawyer. Did you ever think about that career pathway? I had this idea that I would be like a lawyer during the day to make money and a writer at night, kind of like a superhero. And I loved reading about the law, both in the news and in fiction. I was more interested in trying to find out ways to avoid the law when I was younger. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Wait, what does this mean you did? <laughs> I mean, well, I'm, we can't talk about that now. a whole now. other episode. Uh, that's right. Um, uh, anyway, one of our guests today is in fact a lawyer and a novelist. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Jay Wexler, an author and law professor at Boston University. He'll be talking with us about his novel, Tuttle in the Balance, about a Supreme Court justice having a midlife crisis. But first, with the Supreme Court in our headlines basically every minute these days, we'll talk to Arin Carmone, a senior correspondent at New York Magazine and a CNN contributor who covers the Supreme Court, among other issues. She is the co-author of Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which came out in 2015 and spent three months on the Times bestseller list. In 2017-2018, Carmone teamed up with The Washington Post and reporter Amy Britton to break the news of sexual harassment and assault allegations against Charlie Rose, as well as CBS's knowledge of his conduct. That work won a 2018 Mirror Award from the Newhouse School at Syracuse University. Previously, Irin was a national reporter at MSNBC and NBC News reporting on gender, politics, and the law. And she was also a staff writer at Salon and at Jezebel. Irin, welcome to the show. Thank you. So happy to be here. It's great to have you here. Um, So we're taping this on June 24th during the end of the current Supreme Court session. Uh, they got like a dozen cases or so left that they could rule on, and our ep- episode's going to be out this week on Thursday, at which point we'll know a lot more about what they did. So we're kind of forecasting. We, we don't know what these decisions are going to be yet. 
But we know that most people have their eye on uh, a couple of particular issues, especially with elections coming up. Two cases, one from North Carolina and one from Maryland, are about partisan gerrymandering. And the case from my home state of Maryland, Lamone versus Benisek, argues that Democratic legislators there engaged in gerrymandering. And the North Carolina case, which is Rucho versus Common Cause, suggests that Republicans did the same. So what do these cases mean for our increasingly partisan politics? So um, up until now, the Supreme Court hasn't really said what kind of uh, gerrymandering, you know, what kind of sorting of people into districts in a kind of biased way is okay and what isn't. They haven't really set a standard. I think most people have this understanding that gerrymandering is bad, but of course these districts have to be drawn in some way. And the question is, who gets to decide and under what bases. So some of the states uh, whose maps are going up through the, the court system right now, there's a couple in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, there are still more states' maps that are being challenged at the lower courts. Uh, they represent really extreme examples of partisan gerrymandering. So you literally have in some of these cases, for example, um, in North Carolina, you had a, a representative say, I think electing Republicans is better than electing Democrats. So I drew this map to help foster what I think is better for the country. So that sounds crazy, right? But but the question has been, is the Supreme Court empowered to get involved in that level of state politics? Um, so this will shock you that uh, the conservative justices, at least based on what they said at oral argument, seem to basically think this is not our job, let politics play out as they see fit. And it just so happens that in many of the cases, if not all of the cases, uh, these biased maps benefit Republicans. Um, in general, you have uh, the liberal-leaning justices, the Democratic appointees, seem to be signaling that they want to come up with some kind of neutral principle that doesn't allow the party in power, whether that's a Democrat or a Republican, to draw maps that keep themselves in power. And Justice Ginsburg has often said, and she repeated this in a speech at the Second Circuit, uh, that what we, sh we should not have a situation where politicians choose their voters. It should be the other way around, voters choosing their politicians. And so... Uh, these cases actually came up through the, the system when uh, Justice Kennedy was sitting on the court. And I think that they thought that uh, he would be offended by the abuse of the process. Um, the last term, they kind of punted on this question of partisan gerrymandering. Um, mm -hmm. But we really don't know how the newly constituted court with Kavanaugh uh, will rule on this. Yeah, this is where I start to get nervous about the way that these two cases, the other one we're going to talk about is the the question on the census about citizenship, but they're both related in certain ways to drawing maps and trying to, like, basically it feels to me like a way of working, of using the courts to allow a minority party to, like, enforce their, to stay in power, right? To manipulate voting in different ways, through whether it's through gerrymandering or one of the sort of separate parts of that, of the, of the citizenship question on the census is, that the, that that there was this one of the uh, GOP strategists who wants to use, who wanted he's dead now to to use that question as a way to redraw congressional districts based on people who were citizens rather than just people in a district and those are both sort of attempts to sort of fix voting in ways and using the court to do that that seems very frightening to me. 
Yeah, I th- I, look, I, th- I think there is obviously a strategy on the right to rig the rules of democracy uh, in a way that le- makes them less accountable to voters. Yeah. I don't think it's wrong to draw that conclusion. It is true that Democrats uh, have also used this system to keep themselves in power, to entrench their own seats. Um, the Maryland case is an example of that. And I think that's one reason why, you know, there could be plausibly in a gerrymandering sense, there could be at both sides. And that's why you also have um, the, some of the pro-democracy groups that, that don't necessarily take a partisan position saying that we need to come up with, uh, for example, citizens redistricting um, councils that, that come up with these maps in a neutral way, as opposed to the party members sitting in a room and kind of duking it out with cigars. Um, the worry, I think, is down the line. John Roberts might rule that those are unconstitutional. So uh, we'll, we'll, what's it, unconstitutional? Uh, the citizen redistricting commissions. Oh. Um, so, so far, I, I mean, I, I think that the, you have to think about the abuse of supposedly neutral tools um, for partisan ends. And I think that he could come up with an argument that under the Constitution, that actually that, that this is supposed to be done by politicians. But you actually had Kavanaugh, the oral argument for the gerrymandering case, saying, well, we have these these, uh, you know, I know this sounds really bad, but is it really our role when you have something like a citizens redistricting commission? So it ends up being kind of the circular argument. Mm-hmm. I mean, the case that this is about minority rule and racial animus is so much more blatant when it comes to the census case that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it has always been uh, that the census counts everybody, whether they can vote or not. For example, it counts children, right? right? It counts immigrants. Um, and the creation of this question, the citizenship question um, on the census, which is administered by the Commerce Department, so it's Wilbur Ross is the defendant in this case. Is awesome, blatant. Wilbur Ross. I love that guy. Yeah, he's great. So, I mean, it, it, there is more and more evidence that this would have a really discriminatory impact, that it would, it would undercount, I believe the number is 4 million people. Um, you mentioned new evidence that came out in this case. So... Um, the new evidence, which was actually discovered in this crazy way, where a, um, a the daughter of this a, is amazing a political activist, yeah. So he dies. Thomas Hofeller is his name. He dies, and they find um, his daughter is going through his stuff, and she finds on his hard drive all of this correspondence between him and the folks who are responsible for putting together the citizenship question on the census, and. Uh, And so, in fact, the ACLU has asked the Supreme Court not to decide this census case. They had already challenged this notion um, of of asking citizenship. And again, to be clear, there is evidence that if you ask people about citizenship, it will systematically undercount immigrants, including Latinos, most notably Latinos, and it will end up with maps that overrepresent for white rural Republicans. And we already have a lot of structural advantages for white for white Republicans, look at the Senate. Um, but we're, we're talking about here the House of Representatives and state districts that are drawn according to the census. Um, and then you end up finding on these hard drives information that makes it unambiguous that the goal was, put really simply and, and accurately, white supremacy. Know, he actually like says that he drew these maps to be, quote, advantageous to Republicans and non-Hispanic whites. And so the question will be, will the court 
decide this anyway and say that this is totally within the rights of the Commerce Department to put this on the census. And the census is being put together in October for the 2020 redistricting, uh, for 2020 census, which will lead to the next redistricting. Or as the ACLU has asked them to do, will they send it back to the lower courts because the Supreme Court isn't supposed to deal with new evidence? And so this kind of gives them a way out if they choose to take it to say, actually, we need the district court, which is supposed to have a trial, look at all the sides of evidence um, and thus punt this this potentially enormously consequential decision. My understanding also is that the government had specifically said in arguing this case, oh, okay, we did not do this for political reasons. We, 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 you know, this this has nothing to do with with any of that stuff. And then this information from Hofeller makes it clear that in fact they were doing it for political reasons, and that and, and that and that the government's testimony in to the Supreme Court or maybe to a lower court was was wrong. Was a yes, lie. Yes, that's the ACLU does say that in their brief to the Supreme Court. They actually say that according to this new evidence. Um, one of the people who was defending the inclusion of the census of the citizenship question on the census actually gave false testimony. And again, usually the Supreme Court that is only bad. Yeah, it's bad. But the Supreme Court isn't really supposed to deal with new facts. They're supposed right. to deal with what the law is supposed to be, how it's supposed to be interpreted in the abstract. And so I think the best case scenario for let's say the non white supremacist people in this country would be to send send it back so that they can properly consider all the evidence. Um, and that also gives the Supreme Court a way out. However, we have no idea if they're going to take this seriously. They may well find, say that, you know, under the Administrative Procedure Act, this is perfectly legitimate to ask people about citizenship. And the consequences of that would be horrific for equal representation under the law. I mean, especially with the rise of Stacey Abrams, it seems like people are starting to gain a much better understanding of how voter suppression actually happens. But it is such a bureaucratic issue, or at least a seemingly bureaucratic issue that is hard to write about, depersonalized, right? It's about large collectives and not about individuals. It's difficult to explain how it impacts people. But it seems like this case and in some ways... um, you know, similar, like, I don't know if this is a reasonable analogy. Tell me what you think, right? In Wisconsin, after uh, Democrats were elected, lame duck Republicans sort of went in and redid laws to undermine the powers of the incoming Democrats. And this seems like in some ways, right, that sort of same kind of retrenchment of power, like using a seemingly neutral tool to kind of double down to legitimize voter suppression. Or um, I, I don't even know that I think of it as minority rule as much as just sort of like flat out voter suppression. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's both. I, I think you're absolutely right. One of the things that Republicans uh, have done that is so effective is to focus on the granular rules of democracy. One reason why it's hard to pay attention to it is because it's actually hyper-localized, right? It involves these individual jurisdictions and state laws are very, um, a lot of this is happening at the state or the local level. Uh, It's dry, it's it's very, very, it's not romantic as you say, even though the the notion of access to the ballot is. Um, But you know, when Justice Ginsburg dissented in the Shelby County versus Holder case that undermined the Voting Rights Act. Um, 
that actually was the day that my co-author Shauna nicknamed her the Notorious RBG. And one of the reasons that she was dissenting in the particular manner that she did, which was making the entire court listen to her protest, was because she wanted us to be paying attention to how the rules of the game dictate the outcomes. So we would not have had a heartbeat bill, for example, passed in Georgia, where a majority of voters don't support banning abortion, support Roe v. Wade, or we wouldn't have a lot of these state laws that are out of sync, even with the most conservative electorates, if we actually had equal representation at the ballot. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but think of, you know, my family is Sri Lankan. And for many years during the Sri Lankan Civil War, there wasn't a census. And so, like we, you know, I come from a minority community. And I, we, it was sort of commonly understood like that, that those communities were undercounted, resources were underallocated for them, simply because it wasn't that that census was being used as a tool or sort of the fact that one hadn't been taken was also being used as a way to not account for people. And the consequences of that have been decades. Um, so yeah, it's pretty, it's horrifying to see how this is shaping up. So you mentioned Kavanaugh and I feel like we're watching, or at least I'm watching this closely to see kind of which way the court turns now that there's a conservative majority, like how conservative is conservative, what kind of justice has he been so far? And how do these conservative justices, who are not all the same as each other, conduct themselves now that they are kind of in proximity? And so the longest serving justice on the court is actually Clarence Thomas, which um, I was surprised to remind myself of last night. I was He's mm-hmm. only in his early 70s. Mm-hmm. And he has been talking about the possibility of reexamining and potentially overturning precedents, you know, And Roe v. Wade, of course, one of your specialties in writing about is probably the most prominent among the rulings that may be at risk. But are there others? And and how conservative do you think conservative is for the, the current version of the Roberts court? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So I think we have to be viewing all of this as a long game. In the same way that there is a long, incremental, systematic attempt to change the rules of the game to entrench a particular minority, a political white male minority, um, there is also a long-term strategy to change the court's jurisprudence that we're not going to see just in these first few months since Kavanaugh was only seated in October. So, And Gorsuch is only in his second term. So right. far, it, and this term as I speak now is not over, but so far there have been some surprising alliances, but the cases in, in that you see either Gorsuch or Kavanaugh signing opinions with the liberals, but so far these are relatively small bore, relatively low stakes cases, um, or ones in, that don't really get to the heart of conservative priorities. I think you also have to think about the role of Chief Justice John Roberts, who's now sitting squarely in the center of the court, or at least we assume that he is. And he has always been somebody who looks at the long-term game. So imagine that, now none of these cases, the cases, the biggest case probably is the census this term, but none of these cases are going to be the ones that are going to have as much uh, political valence as, say, if the court was deciding an abortion case or or uh, affirmative action that might really command people who are not watching deeply in the process here, or whether to uphold the Affordable Care Act. John Roberts must be thinking, based on everything that we know about him, 
I both have conservative priorities for the long-term project of the court, and I want Republicans to be reelected. And right now, what's happening on the left? People are having long-term structural conversations about the court. They're having conversations about whether we should have lifetime tenure, whether we should change the, con- the, the constitution of the court, literally how many people is it constituted of. And he's concerned about the institution's legitimacy. We don't know how much or how far, but the, there are competing priorities here, and one of them is, do I want all of the Democrats to be up in arms and to turn up at the, at the ballot box because they want to vote against Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump choosing the next Supreme Court justice to replace Justice Ginsburg or Justice Breyer? Do we want to activate people by making them so angry, or do we want to find some kind of narrow consensus or some kind of punt that would make people pay less attention to the court and allow us to slowly uh, erode the precedent that way. Well, that's that's. The, I do think that the long-term game is a deeply conservative one. I, that's the thing that I have been thinking about a lot. You know, the court always polls in terms of Americans' opinion of it much higher than Congress, for instance. You know, um, but I start to wonder if you have a series of these decisions, like like the gerrymandering decision and, and this whole thing about the citizenship question on the census, people are not going to understand, oh, we couldn't consider that evidence. Do you know what I say? Like if, if, they, yeah. if they go ahead and say, yes, the citizenship question goes on, and, that, and then the, the census isn't going to be taken for another 10 years, and it's there. And yet we know that there was this political movement. And of course, like, well, on a technicality, we can't consider that. I feel like the court begins to feel more like a distinctly partisan organization than it has ever been in my like lifetime. Uh, maybe yeah. I'm not thinking about history clearly. Maybe it was ever thus. But it really does start to feel different. I don't know if it feels that way for well, you. One of the issues is that the Supreme Court was a deeply conservative institution for you know, if you think about uh, striking down New Deal legislation throughout the 1920s and 30s. Um, but I think that people today are thinking about Brown v. Board. They're thinking about Roe v. Wade. They're thinking about gay marriage. So for progressives, they've long relied on the Supreme Court to stand up for minority rights. Yeah. And I think increasingly, and Justice Ginsburg, I think, is one of the people warning of this. That's not the court that we have. And in fact, the, the conservative justices who are currently sitting on the court have been part of a movement that their number one goal is eroding all those victories that I just mentioned, right? They want to undo those, the, the Warren court and the Berger courts uh, wins for progressive priorities. And so, uh, but it's a problem for Democrats because I think, you know, I've talked to people who do focus groups with Democrats and they do feel positively about the Supreme Court and they're not critical of it, despite things like Citizens United and Shelby County, that the voting rights case. And so a big question moving forward on the politics of it will be, is that going to change? And I think if you're John Roberts or Brett Kavanaugh, um, both of whom are movement conservatives, they're considering that too, right? They kind of want to defuse progressive anger at the court while also um, aligning with the conservative priorities that got them into this in the first place. And, and, and so where do they draw the line is going to be the big question moving forward. So um, we've, of course, been invoking the notorious RBG um, throughout this conversation. And you, of course, you actually wrote the book on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Would you read a bit of the book for us? Uh, There is a terrific passage where it talks about her writing and editing and um, her sense of how writing is connected to the law. 
Yeah, I thought, you know, given given the over I know the podcast is is broad in its topics and focuses, but I, I love RBG as a writer. So any excuse to talk about her as a literary person, um, it's not in this section, but she did study with Vladimir Nabokov at Cornell, and he was one of her professors. Yes, and he taught her. Uh, she said that she became obsessed with the order of the words um, as a result of his lyrical voice. So, okay, this is a section called "Red Hot Pen." It is writing an opinion and the process of negotiating a position that at least five justices will agree to that can often change, quote, sometimes in the process of stating your reasons, you begin to say, am I right? Did I overlook this question or that question? RBG explained. And not often, but sometimes a justice will say, this opinion will not write. I was wrong at the conference. I'm going to take the other position. After she circulates an opinion she's written, RBG said, she'll sometimes get notes saying, Dear Ruth, I might join your opinion if you change this, that, or the other thing. She usually agrees to the concessions, even if the result won't read exactly as how it would if she were queen. I try, even after I have the fifth vote, to accommodate a colleague. RBG is the senior associate justice among the liberals, and that means that she's served on the court the longest, will often assign who writes the dissents. I try to be fair so no one ends up with all the dull cases while another has all the exciting cases, she told the New Republic. I do take, I suppose, more than a fair share of the dissenting opinions in the most watched cases. Of course, she has her dissent collar that she wears when she uh, dissents from the bench. Even a dissent doesn't necessarily mark game over. Occasionally, a dissenter's draft may be so persuasive that the majority flips. RBG pulled that off once, quote, a heady experience. End quote. A draft dissent might shame the majority into a narrower result. It might strengthen or focus the majority. Justice Scalia dropped his dissent in the at VMI case. This is the Virginia Medical at uh, Virginia Military Institution that was uh, about whether they would allow women in. In her lap on a Friday afternoon, RBG joked that he ruined her weekend but made her opinion better. The night before RBG famously fell asleep at the State of the Union in 2015. She told me, I thought to myself, don't stay up all night. But then my pen was hot. <laughs> RPG's pen is often hot late at night. I think that law should be a literary profession, RBG says. And the best legal practitioners regard law as an art as well as a craft. Ah, I love it so much. <laughs> and there's all this great stuff in there, too, about her being just a vicious editor. <laughs> yeah. I could go on and on. Actually, one of my one of my lifetime greatest all time experiences was when Justice Ginsburg officiated at my wedding. Um, and beforehand, we, you know, she has a couple of scripts that she uses for uh, for when she officiates at weddings. But you know, she'll personalize them, or you pick and choose which portions you like, and then she adds her own things. And when we got her track changes on what we asked for, in which she was editing her own words. I just thought I, I'm finally I'm getting to see into one of these merciless edits and the target is herself. Oh, wow. How did you convince her to officiate at your wedding? Um, well, you know, I got to know her a little bit through the working of uh, the working on of Notorious RBG. So wait, do you get married after the book came out? We did, yeah. Oh, okay. We got married two years after the book came out. <laughs> okay. um, and uh, we wrote her a letter about how her marriage, which was a true partnership, was an inspiration to ours. And she was kind enough to come to Brooklyn. Wow, that's nice. 
That's so great. And then I saw that Ari did um, a notorious RBG show. Um, am I am I getting this right that he, that he did a um, did some oh, art related yeah. to RBG? Notorious RBG was adapted into a museum exhibition, which opened in Los Angeles last fall. And it is actually opening in Philadelphia in October. And one of the pieces is uh, my husband, Ari, um, made a a portrait of Justice Ginsburg using uh, a mix of tattoo ink and and skin from the inside of his cheek. And he actually presented Justice Ginsburg with uh, one in a series at our wedding. And on the bottom, it says RBG DGAF. And she was like, what does that stand for? <laughs> and and he looks at me like, should I tell her? I was like, she can handle it. And she just burst out laughing. One of the things that I, I noticed about the, the part that you read, and, and well, and also about uh, the the book in general, is you, you spent a lot of time on her well-publicized friendship with uh, Justice Scalia. I think that one of the reasons that liberals feel comfortable with the court is that there are there is a history of these kinds of stories and the idea that you talked about in the passage that you read where she's able at time to convince somebody by the power of her argument that that regardless of their political affiliations, actually her argument was right, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm starting to feel like, I mean, Scalia is dead. We have different justices mm-hmm. on the court now, uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, and I'm wondering if that court that we used to think that those kinds of friendships could occur on doesn't exist anymore. I think it's aspirational, this notion of the court in which people genuinely can convince each other. And sometimes I think she uses that aspiration to kind of shame people into less partisan ends. Mm -hmm. You know, so for example, when I asked her if she thought that this court was ready to overturn Roe v. Wade, she said something like, well, this chief justice would never do anything so partisan, you know, or I remember how my chief justice, as she called him, Rehnquist, you know, everybody thought that he would uh, overturn Miranda, you know, the very important uh, criminal justice case. Right. Uh, And and he didn't. And so I think sometimes when she's talking about the integrity of the institution or the ability of people to be collegial across the aisle, whether that's in their affect or or whether it's in uh, their actual substance of their opinions, I think she's also doing it to kind of scold them into living up to those aspirations. And the audience of it, you have to think, also includes Chief Justice Roberts. That said, uh, having begun as a consensus seeker, the last few years she's been breaking records in vocally dissenting, and, and she and Justice Sotomayor in particular have joined together to be the lone dissenters or the, the duo of dissenters in some of these cases. So I think she is raising an alarm when she needs to. Um, but you know, you'll notice that there are not opera dates between her and Kavanaugh. But I do think that both she and, and Justice Sotomayor, to some extent, who gave an interview referring to Kavanaugh as a member of the family uh, mm. after confirmation, they, there's, it's, there's their internal monologue and then there's the monologue that's aimed at trying to limit the damage of their conservative colleagues, knowing that they're on this lifetime appointment um, and that this is the court we have. I remember what she she made comments after um, after he hired his clerks because he hired all women clerks, didn't he? Yeah. And um, she sort of she is that a good thing or a bad thing? She praised him. Yeah. I mean, look, I think it should be read in in the same light as the Sotomayor comments that I just mentioned, which is, you know, I think we can guess what Sotomayor and Ginsburg think about Brett Kavanaugh and the way that he got on the court. Um, But they they joined a court that already had Clarence Thomas on it. I think I think it's fairly clear what Justice Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor are likely to think privately 
about people like Brett Kavanaugh, but they're also deeply pragmatic. They also know that the stakes are really high. And it seems to me like they believe that talking up, for example, that Kavanaugh's now a member of the family or praising him for hiring female uh, clerks is also a way to try to persuade him to come to their side by showing how open-minded they are, how how much comedy there is on the Supreme Court. And I understand that for a lot of people that is deeply off-putting. And I think that there were a lot of people who put themselves on the line in the Kavanaugh nomination who were upset to see that. Um, but ultimately, this is, I think, a deeply pragmatic move. So speaking of Clarence Thomas, um, late last month, you were writing about uh, Ginsburg and Thomas fighting in the footnotes of the ruling on Indiana abortion law. And you were suggesting that it foreshadowed abortion wars to, laws, uh, sorry, abortion wars to come. And uh, there was some very interesting writing there that seemed much more like direct, um, dare I say, trash talking that seemed, you know, pretty far from typical. And, um, you know, she said that he displayed, quote, more heat than light. And he he said that her partial dissent makes, quote, little sense. And, um, you know, he was making links between abortion and eugenics. And it it got a lot of attention. And you in particular did a close read it kind of of that fighting. Like, what do you what do you think she was thinking then? It's the same tension, I think, where when she puts on the dissenting collar or when she has these really furious. (laughs) Uh, concurrences or dissents, um, you know, the gloves are off and she no longer is in a position to persuade anyone or she thinks that what people are saying is so outrageous that she has to say something. Um, The backdrop here is that the Supreme Court has repeatedly said that uh, states can't ban abortion before viability and they can't put undue burdens in the path of people seeking abortions. Clarence Thomas has made it clear repeatedly that he wants the court to revisit this. He's repeatedly said he thinks Roe v. Wade is wrong, um, and he'll take any chance to accuse his colleagues and his audience in this point is his conservative colleagues of being cowards for not wanting to take it on fully. And they may not want to take it on fully for the same reasons I was talking about before, which is that they worry about the backlash to the court's legitimacy and to Republicans in office. Um, But very occasionally, this kind of polite doublespeak that the court engages in, in which they you think maybe we're talking about abortion, they so rarely directly argue with each other, and they so rarely directly argue with each other about abortion, that this was extraordinary and shows, I think, that there's a behind-the-scenes wrangling here about whether, is the court going to adhere to its own precedent, uh, which again says that the state can't ban abortion and can't unduly burden people seeking abortions? Or is it time to fundamentally re-examine that almost 50-year-old precedent? Yeah, reading your article, I really couldn't couldn't help but think of, I live in Minneapolis now, and, and I couldn't help but think of people sort of battling to be Midwestern nice and then just snapping. Um. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, look, Thomas has never been civil in that way. I think his, he's always very dyspeptic. But I think to see Justice Ginsburg mix it up with him shows how furious she is. Yeah. Well, we're just about out of time. But looking forward, um, you know, there's a ton of things that the Supreme Court's going to be looking at or has already looked at. You know, you mentioned the Shelby County case, which you feature in the book. And, and I like that passage where you mark up her dissent. Um, uh, or you know, like write notes about it. Um, Citizen United, Medicaid expansion, healthcare, gene patents. 
What should people be looking for in the next term? So in the next term, the court is going to consider whether uh, discrimination against transgender people uh, is covered by the Civil Rights Act's prohibition on discrimination on the basis of gender. So that would be a really, really important case. Um, we have yet to find out whether the court will take up another abortion case. Uh, they've been asked to hear several. In, in the broad sense, I think we're going to be looking at uh, these questions of exemptions to broadly applicable civil rights laws or laws like the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you're increasingly seeing religious conservatives try to poke holes in those laws by saying that they violate their First Amendment rights, their religious rights. Um, and, and then I think we're, we're going to be looking at a lot more of these kinds of procedural cases in the long term that are going to be um, about changing the rules of the game so that politicians are less accountable. And I think we need to be paying attention to those just as much as the ones uh, that, that are easier to understand, frankly. Erin, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your taking the time and I'm so happy to have the chance to catch up with you a little bit. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. And now we're happy to welcome Jay Wexler to the podcast. Jay is the author of six books, including the brand new Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life, and the 2015 novel Tuttle in the Balance, which features Supreme Court Justice Ed Tuttle as the protagonist. Jay is a law professor at Boston University, and before that, clerked for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which makes him pretty much our perfect guest for this episode. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be talking to you today. This is great. We've been talking to our first guest, Irene Carmone, about whether or not the court is in the process of becoming an entirely partisan body. Uh, your novel, Tuttle in the Balance, came out in 2015, which means, I'm guessing, that you did not know that Donald Trump was going to be president when you wrote it. And if you did, you should have made a ton of money and should be out of law prep professing altogether. Or that Justice Kavanaugh would be on the bench. So how has the court changed since 2015? Uh, yeah, it's changed a little bit. I mean, it is more conservative for sure. I think what's happened is that now the chief justice looks like he has replaced Justice Kennedy as maybe the swing vote. Uh, we're not quite sure if he's going to be a real swing vote guy or if he's going to vote more more consistently conservative. But he has in the past uh, voted with the liberals, for example, in upholding the uh, Affordable Care Act. Right. And we And we also know that he's an institutionalist, so he really cares about the how the court is perceived. But he is does that, not what is huh? that true? Is or do people just say that? I mean, do you really believe? I sometimes think, what maybe that's just bullshit. Yeah, no, I mean, well, it could be bullshit, I, uh, <laughs> but I, uh, but I, I mean, I think there's something to it. If you're the chief justice, the court is always. Uh, thought of as sort of yours. You know, we talk about the Warren yeah. Court, the Berg Court, the Rehnquist Court. And so we're going to be talking about the Roberts Court, and they're going to be talking about it for, you know, centuries. I don't know Chief Justice Roberts at all, but there are some decisions that he's that he's written and that he's joined that suggest he might care uh, that, that, the, that, the, that the court does not look like a political body. And so... You know, he try, might try to get agreement among the justices where there might not otherwise be agreement. Um, so it's hard to say. Uh, it's it's still too early because Kavanaugh and Gorsuch have not been there for very long. So we'll you know find out over time. But there's a possibility that the chief will become a swing justice. But if not, then we're definitely farther to the right than we were before. No doubt about it. I mean, is that sort of I, I, I want to there's two things. First of all, we're recording this on the weekend before the last week of the of the court 
being in session, I guess, right? And so yes. they're going to they're gonna have these two important decisions that are coming up, one about the, the citizenship question in the census and another about partisan gerrymandering. We don't know what those decisions are going to be, but if Roberts goes right on both of those, does that sort of like cast the die? It's like, oh, really, that was just cute that he did that thing about the Affordable Care Act, but really he's just, this is going to be a fully partisan court from now on. Uh, I don't know. I, if he goes that the, to the right on those two cases, I think, you know, it's a signal that, that he's, he's, he's leaning conservative. I don't think it ends the, uh, the, you know, the question about whether he turns out to be a swing justice or not, because neither of the, those cases are important. Uh, I don't know if they're necessarily the most important, um, like we don't we don't know what he's going to do about Roe versus Wade, for example. Uh, so, so uh, it, it's still possible, even if he comes out to the right, that he could still be a swing vote. But it the chances are lower. Like I, so, I don't think we know, you know, with any given opinion, for the most part, what what the court's going to look like uh, in going forward. I, you know, maybe I'm being too. Pollyannish or something. Uh, <laughs> I just I like to think that the court's not an entirely political body, so maybe that's why I'm leading that way. So your protagonist Ed Tuttle sees himself as conservative, although he's amusingly bored by what he sees as more dim-witted right-wing justices on the court, and he's sort of bored by what's going on in the court generally. And that seems like a refreshing point of. I mean, it's a, it's not certainly what not what not what I was expecting when I was reading about a Supreme Court associate justice. You know, do, I'm glad do, you do, liked do, it. Yeah, thanks. yeah. Do, do I mean do justices get bored with what they're doing? Do they? I mean, does does Tuttle's sense of humor and self-reflection is that? Uh, a thing that you associate with the justices? Uh, not really, no. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's hard to know. It's In not order like to I'm write hang, this hanging. novel, I had to invent someone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like hanging out with the justices much. I do know a couple things. Like Justice Kagan is a genuinely funny person. Uh, Justice Thomas actually has a sense of humor. It's interesting. Justice Thomas never speaks, you know, from the bench, of right. course. But uh, one thing you get to do as a, a Supreme Court clerk is uh, every group of clerks for each justice gets to take every other justice out for lunch once. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. so the four, there are four of us who are clerking for Justice Ginsburg and we got to take out Justice Souter. We got to take out Justice Stevens, Justice Rehnquist, et cetera, one time. So we got to at least talk to everybody. And Justice Thomas was by far the most sort of normal person you could just chat with. And, you know, he made, he made jokes. He laughed at our jokes. So, so he was kind of a, funny guy in a way i mean his jurisprudence is so surprising is, to me i've, I've not i did not know that yeah no it, it is surprising to most people when they hear it. now by i want to be clear his jurisprudence makes me weep but uh but he does have a sense of humor um and it, and it's also true you know just a suitor quit the court long before he needed to and part of the you know the reason people think he did that was because he just hated washington dc and he liked hiking in new hampshire he loves new hampshire <laughs> And so, you know, maybe there's some sort of analogy there. But do did I did they get bored with what they're doing? I very much doubt it. I don't think they have that sort of self-consciousness uh, that that Tuttle ends up with in his, during his midlife crisis. I mean, I'll tell you this story. I, I sent the book to, to, to Justice Ginsburg and I, I described it. To, I don't think she read it, but I described what it was. And she wrote back and she said, um, what, did you name your just justice after? this famous judge Tuttle who was on the lower courts for many years. And she said in her letter, because I think he would never have been the kind of person to have a midlife crisis. 
like as though I'm having a midlife crisis is like a terrible <laughs> thing and like no you know sane person would ever have. So speaking about the humor quotient of the justices, you talk about the way I mean or Tuttle thinks about the way that the justices compete to get uh, in the court transcript the word bracketed word laughter inserted. Is that a real thing, or did you make that up for the uh, for the? And then you also you've written an article about this also for uh, in real life, not outside yeah. of the fiction. Maybe you could talk about the relation, and that article's mentioned in the book. So maybe you could talk about the relationship between that scene in the book and your article that you wrote. Right. So I have Tuttle basically make fun of me in the novel. So <laughs> I uh, in two thousand five, the transcriber. What what are they called? <laughs> the uh, stenographer. The, yeah, what, the, the transcriptionist. Whatever it's called, they. They, for the first time, they started naming the justice uh, who asked the question. Like prior to 2005, if you read the transcript, it just says justice, colon, and then the question. The transcript is always noted when there's laughter in the courtroom. But before, we didn't know who, which justice got the laughter because it just said justice. But in 2005, when they finally started identifying which justice asked the question, it, it like it clicked for me one day that we could now study which justice got the most laughter. And like, so I did this study of the 2004 or five term. It took me like three hours to do. Justice Scalia, you know, got by far the most laughs. And I published this thing in a, in a kind of obscure legal academic journal. And, you know, a couple people looked at it and thought it was cute. But then Adam Liptak in the New York Times read it and loved it. And he wrote a front page story about it in the New York Times <laughs> on the last day of 2005. And all of a sudden I was on Nightline and everybody was talking about it. It was really quite exciting for the 30 minute, you know, for the three days or whatever that people were paying attention to it. So anyways. Um, hey, it's, that was I, longer than 15 minutes. That's true. That's right. That's right. Uh, I should be thankful for that. So anyways, then then Twitter came along and I, I, uh, I decided that I would that I would do the same thing on Twitter. Uh, so I go at SCOTUS humor and I count the laughs and I update people in real time, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I, you, I do see or hear rather that the justices talk about it in their oh, little really? talks. Like they never mention my name. Uh, in fact, Justice Kagan once called me, uh, Miss, Miss Professor Alexander or something when she was talking to, to, to some audience. And then, and then I tweeted about that and she actually wrote me an email apologizing. It was very sweet. Um, but anyways, the justices sometimes, uh, you know, make reference to the stupid study <laughs> that I do, uh, which always makes me feel good, but, uh, you know, is absurd. So anyways, Tuttle is in the book. Tuttle has these, these doofus, you know, fellow justices who are always going to, for the laughter so that they can, you know, compete to be in first in the standings uh, of my standings, and Tuttle thinks it's ludicrous. So I thought that was kind of meta and interesting thing to do. When you were working on the novel, I'm curious. Um, I sometimes teach humor, and I'm just curious about um, which came first: the 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 idea that you wanted to write a comic novel, or the idea that you wanted to write something set in the Supreme Court, like, and was your first. Um, Jester, at this, was it to was your first instinct to be funny? Yes. So I, the only thing I can, I can't write anything unless there's some humor to it. Uh, so I could never write anything serious, and I don't think actually any serious book or TV show or movie about the Supreme Court is can be very interesting just because of what the Supreme Court does. Now, but I should say that the the Tuttle started as a short story. There's a I published a short story called The Adventures of Ed Tuttle, Associate Justice, which is 
takes place right before the novel starts. He's uh, in Jackson Hole for the summer, and he he rediscovers his sexuality over the summer. Like there's some reference to that in the novel, and like he realizes he goes to a bar, and you know somebody asks him who who are you know what do you do, and if you say Supreme Court justice. Well, that, you know, that's kind of a good line. And and so he picks up women and uh, he has a great summer until this sort of rock star Liz Fair character dumps him and makes him feel uh, destroyed. And that's how the, the short story ends. So the short story, so the novel, people like the short story and, uh, you know, I had the character and everything. So that's where the novel started. Maybe this would be a good time for you to read from the book. Sure, I'd be happy to. Should I just start right at the beginning and read a page, uh, two pages or so? That'd be great. All right, <clears throat> here we go. Ed sits in his cavernous office behind a colossal oak desk covered with stacks of briefs and papers so high he can barely see the people he's talking to on the other side. There are two of his law clerks, Don Fenton and Rick Morrison, and they are discussing Texas versus Sexy Slut Magazine, the First Amendment case that several of Ed's fellow Supreme Court justices want to consider this term. It's been nearly 40 years since the court issued Miller versus California, a decision that placed big time limits on how much the government can restrict pornography. But the early 21st century is a far cry from the early 1970s, and Ed senses a growing feeling around the Marble Palace that maybe it's time to give some power back to the censors. It's not a feeling he particularly shares. Not that Ed is a big fan of Sexy Slut magazine or anything, but censorship has never been high on his list either. Plus, the idea of going back to the era of viewing porn flicks in the court's basement to see if the films are really obscene enough to ban, like the justices used to do back in the we-know-it-when-we-see-it era of the 1960s, (laughs) is something that Ed would like to avoid at all costs. He suddenly imagines having to watch a money shot on the court's 56-inch plasma television while sitting on an antique leather couch next to 83-year-old Rebecca Leibowitz, and this causes him to bury his face in his hands and let out a sound like a dying coyote. (laughs) Are you okay, Justice? Don asks. Oh, yeah, I guess, Ed responds through the cracks in his fingers. He lifts his head out of his hands, leans back in his oversized chair, and puts his feet up on the desk right next to the framed photo of his only child, Caitlin, standing in front of the brand-new Manhattan restaurant she opened last March. What were you saying again? Don and Rick have only recently started working as Ed's law clerks, and they are trying to deal with the fact that the man they are spending so much time with seems to be very different from the one they expected when they secured this prestigious gig over a year ago. They had counted on someone focused, hardworking, and sure of himself. That's the reputation Ed enjoys with his former clerks. But this Ed seems to be scattered, hesitant, even a bit of a slacker, at least for Supreme Court justice. Yesterday, for instance, he left at 4.30 in the afternoon, even though preparations for the impending start of the new term kept some of the other justices in the building until after 10 o'clock at night. Dawn takes a look down at her notes, scrawled out in tiny script on a long yellow legal pad, and then looks back at Ed. What I was saying, Justice, um, I was saying that it doesn't matter how you vote in conference, right? There are four votes to grant for sure. I mean, obviously, Garibelli and the chief are going to vote to hear it. And what's the chance that the two musketeers won't go along with them? So the court's going to take the case no matter what you say. The hard call is going to be when you guys actually decide the case. Ed nods. Don's right, of course. Though it takes five out of the nine justices to decide a case one way or the other, it only takes four justices to decide to grant a case. And Garibelli, the old right-wing hothead, almost certainly has at least three other votes to take this one. Ed always cringes when he hears the phrase, the two musketeers, but he has to admit the moniker fits. 
The nickname conferred by the renowned New York Times court reporter Adam Farkas upon Justices Arno and Cornelius, the two dim-witted right-wingers put on the court in the space of a year, has stuck fast in legal circles, and for good reason. The two usually vote together, and when they do, they always vote on the conservative side of the issue. They're about as predictable as an uneaten broccoli floret on a five-year-old's dinner plate. Ed considers himself a fairly conservative justice, too, especially on issues like states' rights and affirmative action, but he likes to think that the pundits and court watchers can't always figure out how he's going to decide a case before he actually gets around to deciding it. Ed sighs, tells Don she's right, and then suggests, subtly, of course, that it's time for the clerks to go on their way back to their little offices to write memos about pending cases, trade gossip about their peers, and spread rumors about the justices' exercise habits or whatever it is they talk about when their bosses aren't around. Thank you so much. So because our show is about the intersection of the news and literature, we have a craft question for you coming out of that, the end of that passage, a two-parter. Uh, you clerked for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, so what in the hell was that like? <laughs> fair, fair question, yeah. Um, so it was a year right after I graduated from law school. Clerkships last a year. Uh, it was a fabulous job. Um, it was just like incredible to be working there. Like you'd walk in during the day and you you know walk to your office and this through the marble and the plush carpeting and you know the, all the history and uh, it's pretty amazing. And uh, and working for Justice Ginsburg is uh, was a fascinating experience. A law clerk at the Supreme Court has basically three jobs. One is work working with the, all of the other clerks for all of the other justices. Uh, to to write memos on petitions to try to tell the court which cases they should maybe take and which cases they generally definitely should not take. That's a that's kind of a like a sorting process because there are seven thousand petitions and they only grant seventy cases. So you write memos and that's a big part of the job. A second thing you do is you kind of prepare your the justice that you're working for for me, Justice Ginsburg, uh, for the cases that are coming up. So you write what's called a bench memo. Uh, 15 page memo on each case t- explaining what you think the issues are and how the case should come out. And then the third thing you do is once the, your, the justice you work for is assigned an opinion, you help draft the opinion and then rewrite it a million times uh, because she tells you that uh, what you've done is not uh, right. So, you know, when you're that's the thing when you're a justice, it's 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 a very odd job to, to be working for Supreme Court justice two years out of law school. But that's the way it always is. And the idea is you don't want somebody who's like developed their own practice and has their own, you know, opinions and things. You want somebody who's going to do your work for you, basically. Um, and that's what the clerk does for the judge. The justice writes, the, uh, the you know, decides the opinion, writes, I mean, decides what to, how the, she's going to vote on the case and what the opinion is going to look like and all the, la- all the final language and everything. So you're really, you know, totally working for the justice. Now, Justice Ginsburg as a boss was pretty interesting like she one thing about her was that she knew uh very well how she was going to come out on cases so it was not like a a situation where she was kind of going back and forth and you had to sort of talk through all the different uh positions that she could take because some justices or judges are like that i had a clerkship before justice ginsburg that judge was more kind of waffly but justice ginsburg had been on the bench a long time she knew which way she was going and that kind of made it fairly easy actually like some people spend all night long at this job but i left like at 6 30 i i went home for lunch every day because i live right near the justice right near the supreme court you know i was it was actually quite a pleasant job now justice ginsburg is uh you know she's seen she's a she's a boss that 
that's kind of like what she probably seems like. She's like, she's very kind of arm's length. You know, she's very quiet. She talks very slowly. She sits in her office, does her work. We, the clerks sit in a different office and it's not like she comes back and came back and like sat on the couch and put her feet up on the coffee table and, you know, chit chatted with us. It was very much, if she wanted us to, to come talk to her, she'd buzz us on the telephone, which was, frightening um and uh, you know you'd be working and b- typing and all of a sudden the phone would go bah! and uh, you know you'd have a small heart attack take some deep breaths and answer the phone and then go talk to her um she's very kind uh when we did talk to her you know we celebrated birthdays and, and things like that but it was it was kind of an arm's length low-key kind of job so my dreams of the clerks working out with her are not true very sad <laughs> no, uh, the clerks did not work out with her. Now, uh, Justice O'Connor used right. to have an aerobics class. What that she would that she would run every every couple of every other day, something like that. Because there's a gym in the Supreme Court mm-hmm. on the top. You know, it's they call it the highest court in the land, and it's a basketball court. But she ran, uh, she did aerobics, and she basically required uh, her only female. Only, only the women clerks that she that were working for her to to do aerobics with her, and then the other clerks, I believe, other women clerks for other justices also joined. So, she, so there were a lot of people who did work out with Justice O'Connor, but nobody, as far as I know, ever worked out with Justice Ginsburg. <laughs> this was, as as I recall, this was the way of getting women space in that facility, right? I, I don't know that how it started or, or what the history was. Um, you know this story, so, Sugi? I've never heard it. I've heard this story before, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and, yeah, I think that maybe there were only men using that basketball court. That um, makes sense. Ah, yeah. I see. I was getting some court time. <laughs> so I want to know about this. You know, I mean, obviously our first guest wrote this book, Notorious RBG, which has been part of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg's emergence as a pop culture icon and phenomenon. Obviously, she wasn't that when you were clerking for her. I mean, what do you think about her becoming this sort of, you know, person who appears on coffee mugs and <laughs> satchels and, you know, and is has... played by Felicity Jones. There you go. I know. Right. It's crazy. Like, it's true, because when I worked for her, like she was a famous lawyer. Like, and if you walked around the court with her, people would recognize her. But if you went anywhere outside the, the surroundings of the court, people would not have any idea who she was. Um, so watching her become this uh, icon has just been amazing. Like I have not only do I have a mug, but my favorite thing I have is a <laughs> finger puppet. Uh, and uh, 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 somebody made a finger puppet of just and I bought it and I sometimes I walk around with it. But um, so so, uh, you know, it's great. Like she's a oh, it's Monday. I think I'll get the finger puppet out. <laughs> I'll teach my class with a finger puppet. Yeah. You know, if I teach a class and Justice Ginsburg wrote the opinion, I might. You know, I've been known to use the finger puppet. To oh, teach. But anyways, Lord. so so she I mean, it's great because she's an inspiration to lots of I mean, tons of people, uh, women especially, uh, but men also. I mean, she did incredible work as a lawyer and uh, in, in, in some of her cases as a justice have been, you know, landmarks. And it's also kind of awesome that somebody like a, a little, you know, tiny intellect, soft spoken intellectual can be a hero in, you know, the current climate where you have to be so loud to get noticed for five seconds, you know. So that's awesome. That's pretty amazing. I don't I don't really know how she feels about it. I think she likes it. But, um, you know, when you're when you're turned into this character, uh, almost, you know, it, it does minimize kind of the human complexity that yeah. I'm sure is, you know, uh, in, inside her. But, 
but that's okay. So in our very first episode, we talked with Matt Gallagher about whether or not you, someone needed to be a veteran or, or a war reporter like what was in, in order to write about the military. And the Supreme Court also seems like this, right? It's mysterious. It's kind of a similarly closed society and group. And, and how crucial was this personal experience to writing the book? Could you do you have to clerk for a Supreme Court justice to write a decent Supreme Court novel? The the experience was very important for for me for sure. Uh, this is you know was my first novel, maybe it'll be my only one, and I w- it made me feel very comfortable writing uh, and describing what was going on in the court. <laughs> you can't quit on the novel writing. That's not you no, know, I, that's not how this works. Oh no, I should. You got to suffer well, more, not just one. I, so far, you're sounding like every other writer that I know. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, now, like, so, but if, if you're somebody who's a very good writer, I think you could write a novel about the Supreme Court without having clerked. I mean, for one thing, not that many, I mean, so few people know what goes on in the court anyways. I don't know how people, w- readers would realize you had gotten it wrong, right? I mean, how many, there are like 30, 40 people who work there a year. So it's not, not like the military. Uh, it's a very small society. So but wouldn't, but, the, wouldn't the Times assign the review to somebody who would have, that's that's what would happen. It's like the, somebody yeah. would say something, right? I mean, maybe, maybe, right. Maybe it's possible. Um, but but there's not that much that goes on. Uh, it's not, you know, it's it's not multi kind of fast. I mean, it's multifaceted, but it's not nearly as complicated uh, as I imagine being in the military is. Um, and I think you could learn quite a bit about what happens in the court from talking to people who are clerks. Uh, there are a lot of people who are who a lot more people clerk for lower courts and uh, and and state courts than they do for the Supreme Court. And you can get 80 percent of the job uh, from from that from doing that kind of work. So I, I don't I, I think it's possible to write a Supreme Court uh, novel without being a, a clerk. Now, I really strongly believe that uh, that he, that the way to go with Supreme Court novels and depictions, as I've said before, is comedy. I think that it's. Uh, I really think there should be a Veep, uh, you know, for the, for the Supreme Court. I think that would work. But, anyways, uh, those are my. Anyways, that's my thoughts about the writing about the court. So I think one of the great things about the book is that it's it's kind of, and I mean this in the best possible way as someone who self-identifies as a nerd, like that it's unabashedly nerdy. Um, like it's like Tuttle is, he's bored by the court, but there are also, right, like there's invented court cases like Sexy Slut. Um, there's gestures to the court's history. So that line between invention and history, you're traveling it very carefully and in fun ways also. Um how did you figure out how that was going to be helpful for you? And and also, like, just how many, it, as I was reading, I kind of thought, you know, I feel like I know a reasonable amount about the law, but I'm pretty sure, and of course, my friends who are attorneys or teach at law schools, I mean, they're reading Tuttle in the Balance, and they're getting so many more kind of Easter eggs than I am. <laughs> I, well, that assumes that some of them are reading it, but if... <laughs> oh, they are, because oh. I, was, I was talking to all my friends at law schools, and um, yeah, your novel came up repeatedly. Oh, well, that's so nice to hear. Um you know, I, the line, I think, comes from just thinking a lot about uh, what it would be like to be a Supreme Court justice. It's such a, you know, it's such a powerful job, but you're at the same time, you're so, uh, unless, you know, you're RBG now, you're really, um, it's like, uh, nobody knows who you are, right? So, so, so you're famous in a way, but nobody can recognize you. And your job, honestly, is not that hard. 
Like it's not the kind of job where you have to work all the time. Uh, and so you could, in fact, do all sorts of weird things. You could live a whole nother life. It, it was always intriguing to me to think about the freedom you have in that position. I mean, you're, you're answerable to nobody. So you can do whatever you want. And you have the time and uh, the anonymity to do it. So why not? And, you know, what would it be like to, to be a justice and then be like, ah, I think I'll go to med school for now. And, like, why not do that? Like, so that always fascinated me as I was, uh, as, I, as I was there and then later as I was, you know, as I teach about the Supreme Court. And so that's kind of what I wanted to explore in the novel. Jay, I wonder if you could talk about, and you sort of gestured at this, that you think comedy was your route to writing about the Supreme Court. So who, present company accepted, has done the best job of writing fiction about the Supreme Court? And and why have no justices, in an, in an era in which Newt Gingrich is writing fiction, why have no justices written their own novels? Or have they, and we just don't know about it? They do say that right, every lawyer has a novel or a screenplay in their, in their yeah, desk I mean, drawer. Bill right? Clinton's writing a novel. I'm expecting there should be multiple novels from <laughs> these justices. It. He published it. Yes, I know. Right? So, I mean, maybe there are. Maybe there's a novel in every justice's desk. I have no idea. Uh, certainly, I've never heard anybody talk about any justice writing a novel. It is, it's tricky to, to move from legal writing into fiction writing. That, that's something that, uh, that, that's not easy to do. Um, but anyways, I, I, don't, um, I don't read a lot of novels about the law. I have to be honest. It's uh, just not the kind of thing I'm interested in reading. And so I haven't read much legal, much fiction about the Supreme Court. The one book that, you know, that that, ha- that did stick with me is Christopher Buckley's Supreme Courtship, which is, which was, of course, a comedy about the Supreme Court and was pretty good, I thought. And he's, um, he was not a clerk, unless I'm missing something. No, he was not a clerk. And you, and and if I remember right, you know, you can, you can certainly tell it's not a realistic depiction of what goes on at the court. But it's still funny and it's still, um, it's still, you know, his classic uh, wit and, and, uh, uh, satire. So it's a good book, but I can't, you know, I wish I could make, uh, uh, you know, shout outs to, to lots of other writers who've written about the Supreme court, but I, I just haven't read, I, I don't read much that doesn't have at least a little humor in it. And there's very little legal fiction that, that fits that bill. So as we noted in the introduction, you have a new book out this month called Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life. Maybe, you know, we didn't get to talk to you about this for this interview because we wanted to talk to you about the Supreme Court, but could you let our listeners know what that book is about before we sign off? There are two sort of observations about the United States that gives give rise to the book. One is that in the past 20 years, the Supreme Court has really torn down the wall between separation of church and state in a lot of different ways and has let Christians put up monuments on public property. And, oh, was, uh, wasn't there a decision about that la- this just this last week, right? Thursday. Last yeah. Thursday, they they said you could uh, the government could have a 40-foot cross on public property. Like, I went to that oral argument to watch it, them as they debated for 70 minutes about whether a gigantic cross is a religious symbol or not. Like, that made, I'm sitting there as an atheist Jew thinking, I, I know the answer to this question. The court has said you can have lots of religion in public life. And at the same time, America's become much more religiously diverse. Fewer people identify as Christians, more people identify with minority religions, and like a quarter of the population identify as having no religion at all. And so the question is, what does what should a religious minority do in a post-separation of church and state nation? And I argue that what what we ought to do, I being a, a religious minority, um, uh, is that we should at, 
we should try to participate in public life alongside Christians. We should ask to give invocations before town boards. We should ask to put up our monuments in public property. We should start after school clubs when they're next to Christian after school clubs. We should apply for government money because the court has said that government can fund religion in all sorts of ways. And that's what the book is about. And I sort of go around the country and I talk to some Wiccans. I talk to Satanists and atheists who have been doing this and uh, talk about what the results have been and why it's a good idea uh, to continue this. Is the, the Satanic Temple is a big part of the book, if uh, if listeners know about what the Satanic Temple is. They're an amazing uh, group. They're really interesting. They're the ones who, they were doing things oh, like- Oh, um, knows about the Satanic Temple. Why am I, I not do. surprised? Well, because wasn't it, Jay, am I right, that um, there were a couple of places where Satanists were doing things like um, petitioning to have, where there were Christian statues, petitioning to have statues built. Right. Um, putting up challenges to, you know, the, the notion of if religion's getting space, we get, we are also a religion, we get space too. That's exactly right. So the Satanic Temple, which is located now, uh, it headquartered in Salem, Massachusetts, is... Uh, seems uh, like the logical has, spot. Right. So they, uh, they built a nine-foot-tall bronze sculpture uh, monument of a kind of a goat-headed occult figure called Baphomet. It cost like a hundred thousand dollars to make. They crowdfunded it, and basically, when <laughs> when when a when the a, a, a state like Little Rock, Arkansas, now is putting up a Ten Commandments monument, they put it up, and so the Satanic Temple says, "Okay, well, can you please also put up our Baphomet monument?" I mean, I just think it's so subversive. Like, you know, if you guys are going to stereotype us or assume things about us or take up all of this space and presume that it's kind of your majoritarian privilege to do that, um, we're going to hold the law to what it's what it actually says it's going to do. Just a quick story. The city of Phoenix has had this uh, practice of starting off their city council meetings with a prayer. Uh, It's been going on for a long time. It's always a Christian, basically. So this but but. But they can't discriminate on the basis of religion under the Supreme Court's cases. So the Satanic Temple asked, can we give an invocation? Phoenix said, yeah, I guess. And then when the city, the citizens of Phoenix found out that there was going to be a Satanic invocation at their town, you know, their city council, they freaked out. And there was this long meeting that went on for hours where they said, we can't let Satan come to Phoenix. And people were holding dollar bills and showing, look, it says, in God we trust and all this stuff. And eventually Phoenix just said, all right, we're not having a religious invocation at all anymore. This puts me in mind of a guy named Rajan Zed, who sort of declared himself a Hindu clergy person. Um, and I think has a couple degrees in business and he has given Hindu invocations a couple times. He also just kind of isn't like, it's interesting to think about like who gets to be representative of a belief system in that. Cause I would never choose him to represent me. I have degree Hindu. Um, and um, it seems like he has gotten some legitimacy from, from this sort of taking up space. I'll be, I'll be really interested to read your book. It sounds yeah. terrific. Um, you know, one thing about that he did is he gave the first Hindu invocation at the United States Senate and he was yeah. shot. He was shouted down by abortion protesters who had to be taken out of the Senate gallery. It's, it was amazing. Yeah, he is. I mean, I, and certainly that shouldn't be happening. Um, <laughs> but I do think like the notion of like the Hindu, the Hindu American identity has been uh-huh. a little bit of a cover for, um, Hindutva in the United States, in my opinion. Oyez, oyez, oyez. Um, although I should have said that at the beginning. Um, we really appreciate your taking the time and talking about your work. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thanks for being on. And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. 
can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the LitHub radio tab. If you enjoy the show, you can do one easy thing to help us out. Take a few seconds and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you listen to the show. It really helps us out. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod and on Twitter at FNF Talk and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. Happy reading.